Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Having more of us at home means more water is being used in our kitchens, bathrooms and gardens. Low rainfall in the last two months and little forecast in the weeks ahead is putting pressure on water supplies around the country. Let's work together to make sure there's enough water for everyone for essential health and hygiene use. By avoiding non-essential power washing or garden hosing, not leaving taps running when brushing your teeth and taking shorter showers. For more water saving tips, visit water.ie. Irish Water. Safeguarding our water for our future. Hello Slackers, season's greetings to you all. I hope your mince pies are full of raisins and your pockets are full of tinsel. My name is Phil Taggart, I'm an Irish broadcaster and I am back with another in my line of Slacker podcasts. This week we land on episode 12 of 16. We are nearly done with season one. Uh, It has been so fun. God, I'm rhyming way too much here today. I sound like (laughs) Christmas rapping, right? Um, But we are almost done, yeah. If you're fresh to the podcast, it's very simple. We get the great and the good of music on. They play a demo and we chat nothing but utter tripe for about an hour. That's exactly how it goes. Let me know how season one has been going, if you've been listening the whole way through. And who is on your wish list for season two? I've already started recording um, season two and if you follow me on twitter or instagram at philly taggart p-h-i-l-y-t-a-g-g-a-r-t you'll know i've been sort of i don't know i've been bragging a little bit because some of the guests that i've already got lined up for season two are are mind-blowing i'm getting to meet legit some of the people that are like have been formative in, in my music career um, and my musical loves, but also some artists that are genuinely like the biggest in the world. So I can't wait to get season two underway. But listen, I don't want to wish the time away. We've got another four to go on this season. Today's podcast is not sponsored. Thank flip, says you. It means you don't have to hear me wangle on about something. But I do want to use this opportunity to big up another podcast that I absolutely adore. Uh, it's a podcast called Mad Notions. Uh, it's presented by Mickey McCullough and Nathan O'Regan. And it is just 
absolutely incredible. It's so off the wall. What they do is they take musical urban legends, they take rumours, and then they go into detail on them. If you ever wanted to know, is Paul McCartney really dead? Who killed Jimi Hendrix? Was he killed? What is a juggalo? How did Ted Bundy almost kill Debbie Harry? The true identity of Katy Perry. I mean, they go into great detail about these um, uh, sort of conspiracy theories. And they're also really funny feckers as well. I, I barely missed an episode of it. So you should go and have a little listen to the Mad Notions podcast. The unofficial <laughs> sponsor of this week's podcast. Because I don't think they're giving me anything for it. They're probably giving, giving me like a... I might get like a mince pie next time I'm over in one of their houses. But honestly, it's a really, really good podcast. This week's Slacker podcast, getting back to it, is a family affair. We have two brothers, Gary and Ryan, and we have a cousin, Ross. Can you figure it out from there? Have you got it? Come on. They're from Wakefield. They are the Cribs. Of course they are. I've absolutely loved this band since I was a kid. I used to read about them every single week in the NME, and I used to be captivated by the photos of um, Ross. No, Gary. Hold on. No, Ross. (laughs) No, wait. Ryan, there we go. It was always a picture of Ryan and he always had a bust up lip and he was wearing the best leather jacket. And he just that coupled with the records that I used to buy of theirs as well, just made me feel like, wow, this is a rock and roll band that aren't too far away from my age. I don't have to go back and read about punk. I don't have to go back and read about what rock and roll really was. I felt like, wow, there's a band that are actually out doing it. And yeah, they're definitely one of the finest bands of my generation. And I've seen them play, I think I've seen them play pretty much every show that they ever played in Belfast. And I'm pretty sure I lost one of my Converse shoes at a gig of theirs in 2009 as well. So that's what, like nine nine years ago, if anybody's found a size 10 blue Converse shoe at the Mandela Hall in Belfast, please post it back to me. I miss it. I miss it so much. Um, I'm absolutely blessed to have all three of them on this week. Um, and this was actually the very, very first Slacker podcast I ever recorded back in December 2017. So I kind of decided to wait until it's one year anniversary to release it. But here we go. This week's Slacker podcast with the Cribs in three. Two, one. Gary, Ross, and Ryan Jarman, the Jarmans. Yeah. Hello. Hi, Phil Tagger. He's all good? Uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're kind of like right in the middle of a tar at the minute. So, um, you know, it's like we're a little frayed around the edges, but uh, <laughs> I would say generally pretty good. We're as good as it gets on a on a long tour yeah, so, yeah. yeah. it has been a lot of ibuprofen on this tour actually um, yeah. going, going <laughs> sex drugs and rock and roll there yeah, is the yeah, drugs yeah. anyway that's it yeah you, you get plenty of uh, sex and rock and roll yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah you got some offers last night I did actually, actually but yeah. we, we won't talk about that was, like, <laughs> uh, so, someone used the term uh, crack like crack on last night like do you want to come back and crack on and Which like, <laughs> there's, there's nothing more alluring than that right yeah. I mean like how do you how do you turn that down exactly, exactly yeah it was it was yeah well you know I I, I just had to politely disappear the light the less said the better. yeah the way we're going to start all of these um, podcasts is I'm going to get like a, a really early demo or an early track uh, from you guys to play to sort of get an idea of, of, of where where you came from at the at the very beginning, 
And I, I had downloaded a track called Baby Don't Sweat, which came out on Squirrel Records, but we're not going to go for that because you actually found something even before that. Yeah, we've got, we have got all the stuff in that. I mean, like, I actually really like that recording of Baby Don't Sweat that came out on Squirrel, but it's maybe not, um, you know, you know, there is earlier stuff than that. So you know. Which sold out by the time we got to Squirrel. It's yeah, kind of, no, it's kind of yeah. true in a way. Actually, Baby Don't Sweat was the first song that we were excited about as in like, oh, maybe we've written a pop song. But prior to that, the the intention was to not really write or make pop songs. And I know that sounds a little bit... Uh, you know, slightly pretentious, but like we we were enjoying the the, the liberty of not really having to, you know, stick to um, you know the, the it, verse chorus verse structures. It, and stuff. If you can't be pretentious, at what age were you then? So we were like twenty one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you can't yeah. be pretentious at that age, you can't be pretentious <laughs> at any age. Well, Ross yeah. was sixteen, and he used to show up to band practice on his motorbike. <laughs> mm. So, like, he wasn't exactly pretentious. Where he'd get there on his motorbike, and me and Ryan be sat there in our in our studio in the mill, just being like. We'd been messing around with some, like, you know, sample all day. And yeah. Like well, being really pretentious. It's been quite nice calling a motorbike. It was actually a, a moped and it was called a Fun 50. That's what it was <laughs> but yeah, I, I used to, to carry the Fun's vibe. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, but yeah, Fun 50. It sounded like a hairdryer and it got stuck. It wouldn't go up hills properly. But that was it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into this first uh, demo then. It's called uh, I Gotta Go to LA. We're going to hear a little bit blast from it right now. 24 hours snare yeah. oh, nice. <laughs> so great, so great. Yeah. 
That was the Cribs. I gotta go to LA. The the first ever demo, first ever song you ever wrote. Um, it, I mean, it, I don't know if it's the first song that we wrote. There was one called "Song from Practice One," which was the first song that we actually wrote. But um, we, it, it was it was a really cool time. I, I look back on it really fondly because we had our own like rehearsal room. It was like this big mill kind of space in Wakefield where we could. It was big enough to hold like shows there, so we started putting on like. Um, you know, like our own gigs and stuff. And then we had, um, you know, just such a lo-fi studio, like a, you know, a half-inch 16-track tape machine and, like... Um, no outboard. No outboard gear. There's some, like, really cheap mics and... Um, just went straight in. But, the, yeah, the fact that we could actually make, like, proper, like, quality recordings <laughs> yeah. and, like, you know, we, you know, it basically, like, took up all our time, you know, just, like, stopped going to college and stuff and became obsessed with making like these uh you know demos and it was just it was i don't know it's like there was no reason for doing it it wasn't like we were doing it to try and get a record deal or anything it was just we just needed we to just create liked it doing it and it was cool and um well just a, like a little background on it like so we started in late 2001 very late 2001 like uh like october i think and we would we were just having like a couple of practices together, and then 2002, we we like right at the start, of January. Uh, Whose idea was it to start it? it well, we'd been going for a little while anyway. Like we like it was, it, it's it's kind of difficult to say because we had already been playing. Um, you know, we got Ross a drum kit when he was like really young, and we were, we used to just like um, you know just like play in one of our bedrooms when even when we were. Like you know, me and Gary was still like fifteen or whatever, so we, it was something that we had like a long history of like playing together just for fun. But I think the the crib specifically, um, as we know it, yeah, yeah, it was it, like that started in you know, like I I I see the you know when we started recording that demo as being like the real start of the band. I think it was mainly was like, Rise' idea to be honest. Yeah. Like he he'd made a demo, he made this song feeling it. He made a demo of feeling it on his own and brought it to me. Literally across the hall from his bedroom <laughs> to my bedroom. You, you, you weren't like you weren't on the bunk beds, were you? you know, like just not like that point, it down no. bottom. <laughs> but he brought it to me, and I was like, "Yeah, it's cool." And then like, like he's like, "We should get Ross to play," and like, you know, that seemed like really bizarre because like, you know, Ross was. Uh, but he was so 15. young. You could, that, you could bully him into doing anything yeah. at that stage, really, right? Yeah, I think I think Ryder just I think well, both of them liked the lo-fi nature of just having almost like a bad drummer at that point, you know, like somebody <laughs> who was wasn't very tight and loose and really basic. Well, and stuff, yeah, the so. main thing was not having. You know, the, you get a lot of drummers who want to just impress other drummers. Yeah, like a want, Lars Ulrich style. Yeah, yeah. So Joey we, Jordanson. I think mm. that was part of the reason we're like, oh, we should get Ross drum because we knew that he did, like, you know, have like knowledge of how to play the drums, but um, not enough. You know, we knew that he'd be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that he would be kind of like, yeah, you know, keep it, he'd keep it straight. Plus, you never, you never met anyone when you were at college. You never ever. And I mean, never met a drummer whose favorite drummer was Ringo. You just didn't like, no. and, and that that was a cool thing about Ross. But like the way that um, like our favorite band was Huggy Bear. Like specifically when the band was first starting, and well, they had this credo where it was like we make our own cards up, and we we you know. Uh, nobody can tell us what's right or wrong because we're we're making the decision of whether it you know of of what 
what the cards are supposed to See, be. I, I had that in my band a little bit as well because me and my friend were like reading through old um, magazines and stuff and we saw an interview with Kurt Cobain where he said mm-hmm. that he didn't have any music theory and he just made up his own chords. Yeah. So for us, that was like going, right, well, okay, um, I'm not going to learn any chords at all. Yeah. And I started trying to write songs and mine were all shit because the chord <laughs> didn't actually make uh-huh. any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, see, the problem, like me and Ray were at college and we'd, we'd, we'd you know, we were pretty learned musicians at that point, you know, like we'd, uh, we'd been playing classical music since we were little kids and then by the time we nah, got... Nah, that's quite shocking. Like, like what, what sort of instruments yeah. were you playing classical we, music we on? Violin, I These guys are sure grade eight, eight vi- violin. Yeah. Well, nah, we, really? Yeah. Yeah. If, you bust, if I bust out a violin right now and by God, we've got, we don't have one. Yeah. Um, could you still play the violin? Like, Yeah, a, I think so. I mean, it, it is one of those things that in, if, like the violin particularly if you don't pr- keep your hand in and practice you do rapidly get worse but I mean you can still balance. do it but could, could we see a collaboration with Vanessa May on the <laughs> no because <laughs> we like you know whenever we've needed violin on the records we've yeah. done it ourselves yeah, right. okay. there's, there's a lot of guitar nerds as well who, who talk about Ryan's style and stuff the fact that like he he's so like he reaches a lot and play, he almost plays the guitar like a fiddle in some ways. You well, because like, he, he has a really wide. He has Ryan has a really wide uh, span, like how he plays compared. Let me, to other let me see. Let me see your span. We're, mat- well, we're matching up here. If it's gonna, like, well, about the same. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've, you've got, got a bit of finger of, distance. But like, on he me. can really yeah. like, he, like he can span like seven frets or whatever. And like a lot of guitar players will move position for that. But because I think like there's there's definitely like some facet of like. His playing that's influenced by the classical background, and yeah. uh, like, he's always playing a top line. He, he doesn't play that many chords. He plays a lot of top lines, but um, yeah. So anyway, we we had all we had all this like background in in music. But then when we started the cribs, like that, that's what Ryan was saying. We had this studio, and we were, we found that we were going there every. We were getting up to go to college, not going to college and going to the studio. So we'd be there every day. And to be honest. And this is going to sound really reductive, but we were actually trying to unlearn a lot of the stuff that we'd learned at college because we, we felt like it was it, it was restrictive to our uh, idea of what we wanted the cribs to be at that point. Yeah, and it got in the way of enjoying playing music. It was like it got to the point where, like, you know, you just kind of like I I felt like going to music college. I just got to the point where I just resented playing music yeah, in some yeah. way. So the whole point of starting this band was to do something that was a lot more visceral and a lot more like, um, you know, uh, where there was no right or wrong. Even if yeah. it was, even if it was like, like so, I got to go to LA is a good example. It was like. It's really kind of like not much of a song. It's just more like an idea that just keeps, or like a concept that just keeps going. And I think that that was the thing that was so. That's why I wanted to play this one on the podcast. It was so exciting to us to do something that um, didn't really make a great deal of sense, but like, but it sounded cool. Yeah. And it, and and the concept was felt good, and so we we really we felt like that song was a big victory for us because it just. You know, it was it was a basic sketch that we thought turned into a good track. So, what, what was it like in 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 Wakefield? Like, where did you guys fit in or not fit in? But it might be the case. Like, did you fit in with like all the sort of other grungy kids that were of a similar mind? Like, were you kind of <coughs> ostracized for what you would wear? Like, how, how how did you guys fit in in those early days? Well, it's a weird town, is Wakefield, like in the nineties, because. You know, when we first started getting into like music and bands and stuff, like Wakefield did actually have like uh, you know there was like one venue in town called Players, which was like a 
a punk rock bar and so you get a lot of like really underground like punk bands that would come through there and um you know you you, you know you from being like a young age you could get in on a friday night so like you know it felt like there was some kind of a scene in the you know in the mid to you know the mid 90s but it was you know it was kind of um the people you know, were a little older than we yeah. were and so like at, by the time that um you know like uh, you know there was a, a like there was like a period in the late 90s where that had kind of died out a bit and um you know like like walking around town like being like a punk rocker or a goth or whatever was like like it was kind of sketchy you know what i mean you yeah. get beaten up or like definitely get abused in the street but that was their the era of like Britpop and you know yeah. everybody's wearing their like Fred Perry t-shirts and that's like why we very well like put together the idea of goth and grunge and punk that's and why it. we didn't like it man like we didn't ever like Britpop because like we you know it, uh, basically Wakefield all the freak all the quote freaks would stick together like you know say if you were a punk uh, or if you were a goth or if you were a you know uh, whatever it was like they they all kind of banded together and the the Britpop kids were kind of the mainstream kids who just who just like would still you know torment people like that and so but mm-hmm. that's what play, players was the hub for that like all those like outcast kids went there and um like ryan was saying there was a there was a good scene like there was some like you know you get like uh bands from like around the country coming and playing there but like you know it was very underground and it but it was exciting it was inspirational to us um definitely much more like in the punk vein but the, it was all a little older than we were. We we used to have to get in with a fake ID, so we never. <laughs> did we, you have Did you have fake names on the? Fake no, no, ID? I always had my own name. Yeah, we were never fully embraced by it because no, we were all a little older. Yeah, we were a bit, yeah, because we were kind of younger. And then, I'd say by the you know like the turn of the millennium, like the whole town and the whole like music scene was kind of suffering from like a you know post ecstasy kind of come down the, the, the millennium was and like there was really no kind of music scene all going the punks on. were in the clubs at that yeah, point yeah. Weren't they? like they were in the clubs taking ecstasy and stuff and um so that's strange isn't it, it was it was yeah. really disorientating for us i mean but that then that, that put us in a position where we the we had to pick up the baton really and i think that i think that like with us opening our studio and like with us um putting on gigs i think that was us sort of subconsciously picking up the baton for for Wakefield at and that point, just trying to make it so that there's something going on, you know, because we would like just kind of let any bands play there, or like you know, we specifically like find bands and bring them to come and play there, and it was like, it, yeah, it it was just kind of a case of just. I always felt like there was. Um, you know, there's always going to be people who want to like you know listen to that kind of music and like you know often fosters a good community so um as long as you like you know make a you know find a communal place or a place where people can meet up then like hopefully you can start your own scene out of it which is what we were kind of trying to do we were just kind of trying did to bring people together did you achieve that do you feel like you achieved um, that well it, it's funny because was what there other like punk was, bands around that stage well there was people that we definitely away, had really. stuff to do with but i think that what really happened was, yeah we were like it, a lot of the bands that we were um like involved in them were the bands that were on squiddle records that we were talking about and that was more of a lo-fi riot girl kind of noise label so it was men we were mainly like uh, having bands like that play with us and mixing with bands like that it was like very garage rock 
And then very shortly after that, the whole strokes, white stripe thing happened and just blew the whole yeah, thing up. Yeah, that, that, that opened everything up. And that was around about 2001. Like, uh, well, I mean, that's why the we feeding got signs. Frenzy was really just after that. Yeah, we yeah. went we went from being just this self-contained thing, making recordings like I got to go to LA in our studio, bunking off college, recording, getting Ross to like come from like high school straight to the studio. And like recording, we went from that to did, being. Did caught. you pass your exams? <laughs> uh, I dropped out because we went on tour with the Sleepy yeah. Jackson and the Delays. <laughs> so. But the weird that's, what, that's a good example of it. We went from like that situation that we were just outlining to being courted by labels and being brought to London and being taken See, on tour. This like, this is the thing I think is really really interesting because like it, this happens every like ten fifteen years in the in the music industry. So one thing will become massive, right? And then the record labels and music industry will lose their shit and they'll be like, right, we need to find yeah. the mm. the next big thing. So obviously shit. in two thousand and one like um, the strokes were big in the UK, but not really big in the US. Yeah. So all of the, the music industry labels, and even still, like even when I was in a band in 2006, 2007, I was still getting, we were still getting people going, uh, we, you could be the new Strokes or New Arctic yeah, Monkeys yeah. or <laughs> shit like that. But that must have been crazy around 2001. With well, I mean, it was completely crazy because the first thing that we heard of it was, um, so we'd made, you know, been making these demos and like uh, we sent we put an eight-track demo out. Yeah, we'd made this eight-track demo that we'd put out, and the first that we heard like of like you know any interest was just getting a random phone call to one of our phones and answering. And it was a guy from um, v- it was from Virgin. Yeah, a guy from Virgin just saying, oh, "I really like <laughs> our <laughs> band," and we were like, "How have you know?" We, we were yeah. obviously skeptical. Like that's weird because we haven't even really sent any demos out. And then you could hear that he was listening to it in the background. I was like. I, I, I was just kind of amazed that that was actually how the industry worked. Mm. That it was like, you know, it's it, a guy in a sheepskin jacket with a cigar, like with his feet on the desk in London. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to make you guys start. It, it was. Yeah. But as soon as that one person had called us after that as well, which which at the time it was, was a Tuesday. It's yeah. weird. I remember it was a Tuesday. Like we were just like, it's a weird phone call to get, and we were kind of psyched by it because it had come out of nowhere, and then we just forgot about it. Went home. And then Wednesday morning, like another nine a.m., rice phone rings. Like another, it's, it's, it's like a it's like a different company or a different record company. And then from that moment on, the floodgates was opened, and it was like we we made a joke where we were like, "Oh, we're not going to set an alarm on a morning for college because literally at nine o'clock every day we we're getting a different <laughs> record company." Calling. And there's a lot of hubris involved in that, but yeah. we also knew that we didn't need to go to college because we also knew that like bunking off and going to the studio is what got us that point so we were just kind of being it was we were just kind of being like uh you know irreverent in that way but we'd only done we'd done like less than what less than five gigs at this point that's crazy isn't it like that's still symptomatic of the the music industry of like getting on board of things way too early but i don't i don't really feel like you're the sort of band that would have got caught up in the hullabaloo and the the, the the figures being thrown about and all, all we'd that we'd never been to London mm. like mm. we'd never well actually that's not strictly true me and Ryan had been to Wembley Arena to see Gladiators in 1991 <laughs> <laughs> so we had been to London but we'd never really been to mm. London and the, it was so bizarre because like this, so the music industry now like post internet everyone's 
like super savvy and like you know like very like knows what's going on moment to moment back then this was still people from the music industry from like the late 80s or the 90s who operated in that like sort of more traditional sense and these are people who'd be like Hey darling, I mean you really must come down to London. Like you like everyone in the office loves you and it'd be really great to show you around. And we were just like we hadn't signed to him, but that that's how people were talking to us. So we just went down there and was just um Were you taking out for like dinner? We were getting you, the we classic put in limousines. We were getting or? the classic stuff, man. What is the classic we, stuff though? Like, like mainly just like dinner and just like talk about like how you know like what what what's gonna happen and like what how how exciting! A lot of how exciting you are as a band is, and within we, but we was like kind of like playing people off against each other, like making people show up to the same shows and stuff, <laughs> so like so they would get like you know be, be, get all stressed about it and stuff. My so okay, we were in, talking about this the other day, like Tom from MySpace. Remember, like the yeah, main, the guy that yeah. when he signed up, where is he, he? Where is he now? He tried signing the cribs. He yeah. tried signing. Hold on, the, Tom from MySpace yeah. isn't a real person. No, he was just like a, met him. A, he's a real person. No, and he's fuck like, off. There's, there's yeah. no way that Tom from MySpace is a real person. He's a real he guy. is just a Getty image that was put up there. Yeah. Not as true. I've got a video somewhere of of, uh, of like I had to secretly film it, but like we had meetings with Tom from MySpace around that time, and he just sold the company for like three hundred million or seven hundred million dollars or something, and he he wanted us to be the first band on MySpace. Space records and what he was saying was this is like what he was saying that when you know like when you sign up to MySpace and you become friends with Tom yeah well, you'd also become friends with those guys yeah. and they it's like, like you'll wow, have that's more like friends than any other person on MySpace I mean how did you me. turn that down <laughs> we'd be the worst we'd be just like a we'd, we felt like we'd be a virus on everybody's profile you'd be like you know? when do you remember when you 2 put their um, exactly. album directly yeah. onto yeah. everybody's phone that was yeah. the worst virus I've ever had that U2 but that's Tom was a nice guy and he was he was genuinely like he, he had he had good intent but like what he was promising us was like way too big for like kids like us to deal with. Because at the point, that's like at, at that year, two thousand six, that was like Mark Zuckerberg or someone trying to sign you. He was like the yeah, most famous yeah, yeah. guy, you know, in, in tech. So it was a little too intense. And like it gave Ross panic attacks. Like Ross was puking in a it, Ross puked in a pot plant. Yeah, and this <laughs> was in a really fancy <laughs> MySpace records it, yeah. at the top of some like massive the fancy yeah. building in that way. I was only like, yeah, I was really young, like what eighteen at that point. Too or young something. to be dealing yeah. with it. Um, but yeah, that was a really bizarre situation. The fact that yeah, we we he, I mean, he was one of the most famous guys in the world, and we were just like. We just sat having a meeting with him, and he just wanted. He, he said that we were his favorite band, and he was asking Ryan to teach him another number on guitar. And he was just like, "We." Uh, he we, seems we, like he's he's legit into it. Yeah, I yeah. think I think he just sold it, and he had so much money, he wanted to make a record label. But uh, so this that, that was that a bizarre was, situation. It's maybe not the best thing for your career, like when there's somebody who's just like it's almost like a, a rich oil baron son, or like somebody who's got lots of money and just wants to do whatever they want with it. it mightn't be the yeah. best thing for your career at that point. Yeah, it yeah. freaked us out. Did the whole thing? It was like it, it was too, um, you know. The, the way that they were talking about stuff operating was like like such a different industry sleazy. to what we were used to. You know, we, we were really used to conspiratorial, the old of like just like you know, you make a good record and you you know you release an album and uh, you know obviously you've got to get online with uh, you know you've got to get like fair with the online stuff nowadays. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that's just a, a given, but. Back then, we were still very much just like we were a band who want to make records, press finals, and you know do it 
do mm-hmm. it that way. So. But this was relating, this was before we'd put out our third record, Men's Needs, Women's yeah. Needs, whatever. So it's kind of jumping ahead a bit, but like, but the, the, when before we signed for the first record, that was still kind of more old school industry stuff. But we, we knew. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That we didn't really want to sign to a major. Like, and it, interestingly, it was the majors that why, came why, along why was, first. Why was that though? Like, why, why do you not want to sign to a major? Because we, like, I mean, surely they've got they've got more money and more clout well, and all the rest of that. It was the yeah. majors who was chasing us at first, and that was really odd. I think it was more a case of like, you know, the personalities that you would meet, like you know, the people from the indie labels, and you speak to them. They've been there for years. And yeah, you knew, you know, you. And they seemed more knowledgeable and seemed like, you know, they were into more, you know, the, the same kind of stuff as we were. Like, generally, like, growing up, most of the records we liked were on indie labels anyway, so we did have a bias towards wanting to be on an indie. What I remember the most was, like, the majors. I, I can so understand why some young bands mm. go that route. The majors, like, what they were doing was... They made you... Re- like, when you went for the meetings, they made you really big, really exciting promises, like, like mind-blowing stuff. Whereas with the indies, what they talked about was how much they loved the demo or the gig that they saw you yeah. at. Like, it was all about talking about the band or the demo, whereas with the majors, it was all about, like, this is so exciting, we'll get you in this studio, this is what we'll do, this is where this is the tours we'll get you on, this is where it'll be. And And that sort of stuff is really exciting, but we... Like it was the majors who came first, and then and so we started. We just contacted the indies ourselves. We were like, "Hey, we've got this interest. Like, we we sort of got a bit of cold feet. Like, we'd we'd rather, you know, meet with some of you guys first if you, if you guys are up for it." And then through that, we had like we did a couple of shows where we had like Rough Trade and and Wichita and and Fierce Pandan labels like that coming down, and we would always just hang out with those guys and have a beer. And it it was like it felt it, it felt good. It just felt more like. Like, they would be at the gig anyway. And at that point, they were the people who had power. I mean, look at, like, what Rough Trade were in 2001. They they were, like, the they were the powerhouse at that point. That was the label I wanted to sign my band to when, when I was younger. It was, always, mm. it was always Rough Trade because they had the roster, didn't they? They had the lineage. They did, yeah. We I mean, found James Endicott. Like, <laughs> like, so what, we were getting all this interest, and Rye, like was, like, he'd seen James Endicott's name on, like, yeah. one of the Rough Trade He's records. He's the guy that signed the Libertines and the Strokes, isn't he? Yeah, it was, mm-hmm. before, it was before the Libertines was this, though. So I don't know, like it was, I guess it must have been, the, oh no, it was from the Moldy Mold, Peaches yeah, record. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So Rye phoned, he was like, phones up for rough trade. He's like, hey, is James Endicott there, please? And they're like, who's calling? He's like, 
oh, it's Ryan from the Cribs. He knows who I am. And then James gets on the phone like, hello. And Ryan's like, oh, yeah, I'm from the Cribs. Uh, you know, we've got this interest. Uh, are you interested in this? He's like, who's interested in you? He's like, well, Virgin and whoever else. And James is like, I'm interested. I'll see you at the gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was really that easy. Yeah. Yeah. And it like, it's funny how we bumped into him in a lift recently. And he was like, he was like about 4 a.m. or something. He's like, why did I not sign you guys again? And we were like, I, I don't know, James. Like, you know, we really wanted to do it. It's like I, I, I can't remember why we didn't do it. And so it's like, it was like a weird thing where, like, like you know, we signed to Wichita eventually. We really, you know, I think that there was like a gentleman's agreement between. It's like, a nice the, brotherhood, yeah, yeah between yeah. like the indie label. We have reached the midpoint in our Slacker podcast with the Cribs. And you know what? It was their live shows. It was going to their live shows and experiencing what a really manic live show is all about is the reason why I set up my club night, um, which I do where I invite two or three bands to come and play, normally in London, but we're taking it out on tour. It's called the Slacker Club Night. And, you know, I just love sweat boxes. I love small venues where it just feels like it's going to fall apart at any stage. I love crowd surfing, circle pits, mosh pits, absolutely everything that like gives you that release. And you don't really get that much with um, London gigs. It's always wanky showcase. Oh, here's the next big star. And it's a load of dickhead music industries all sitting at the back, uh, like stro- stroking their beards, just like my friend Chris is right now, who can see me recording this. <laughs> um, but no, I just, I really wanted to make a massive party all the time. And that's what the Slacker Club Night is all about. And we are taking it on tour this February. I've got one of the best bands in the UK if you haven't listened to them, go and listen to them. They're called The Magic Gang, and they're coming out on a couple of dates with me. I've got an amazing support band too, but I'll, I'll leave that for a little while. I want to announce them later. The tour is February the 20th in the Engine Rooms in Southampton, February the 21st at Sub 89 in Reading, and February the 22nd at Dreamland in Margate. So come get some tickets, come get loose, enjoy incredible music live, and we'll do a bit of crowd surfing. How about that? So the tickets will be in the link below. Right, let's get back to the podcast now. This is The Cribs, part two. What was it like culturally around that time as well? Because like, I remember being a kid around 2001, 2002, when The Strokes came out, I had that military jacket that mm. Julian Casablancas yeah, wore. And I was <laughs> I was buying um, high-top sneakers yeah. for the first time. Like I was I was definitely a, a, a casualty of that, mm-hmm. which is still a really good fashion it's a strong look it's a strong look looking back on it like you know I don't it's not like New Rave where you look back on New Rave and you're like oh my god I can't believe I did that Mm. I mean this is quite New Rave what you're wearing right now actually I I just want to be noticed (laughs) (laughs) an an orange luminous sweat top I did Uh, notice you in the taxi mm -hmm. but yeah I think like culturally it was like um yeah, you know, it was it was early. It was like when people were still looking to, you know, like people were still fascinated with what was going on in America. Really, you know, there hadn't been like, a, you know, the the British thing hadn't uh, like started at that point. So, but we'd always like, you know, I've, I've worn a leather jacket all my life anyway. So mm. it was like I didn't necessarily think of it as a, you know, like the whole strokes thing as being a stylistic thing. I was just like, oh yeah, they're just wearing normal clothes. But um, it sort of fell into our laps because we we always dressed at thrift from thrift stores. Like ever since like the mid nineties, like when I was into grunge, like I just always get my clothes from either my granddad's closet or from thrift stores, and like so we'd always dress like that. And then and we had these low fi recordings which were by necessity, and all of a sudden. 
that's the industry was looking for like yeah people that dressed like that who like will all, all of a sudden lo-fi was like this thing that like like was getting on radio one and people were excited about the sonics of a record and people were like garage rock or whatever so yeah it really fell into our laps like we, and i think you're that, that, right right place right time I, I, well, we, we were, were in the wrong right place <laughs> really really but like yeah because we, were, we weren't in london we were up north so it was like I, I don't fully understand how um, I I don't I don't know how the word of mouth thing works. I don't know how people in London f- or the, in the industry first heard of us, but it was like you know it's like starting a band in Wakefield in the early two thousands. You definitely didn't know how to you know. I mean, even if you wanted to get signed, you had literally no idea how to do it. You know, yeah. you didn't, there was no. It kind of felt a little bit. Yeah, hopeless. You know, I mean, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't seem like you. Nobody started a band to get signed. That's really, because it was studio. Yeah. impossible. All, all the best bands that start don't start to no, get signed. They I mean, start because they have to. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, I mean, you can always tell bands that have started to like you know. It's when jump they, on a bandwagon or whatever. Because it's when it's, they change their style of music six times in two years. You're like, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, okay. Yeah. I think you might like be taking the piss here, but, but, but like you built your name up by not just signing to a label. Like you, you guys toured and toured hard and often. And I, I just love the bit. Where you, did you actually do this right? Because I've I've heard about this and I've seen it. <coughs> I've read about it before. We'll play for travel and a creative beer. Yeah, that was mm. after the. And first. that was put up in phone boxes. No, it wasn't in phone boxes. <laughs> was it? Because like I was imagining, like you know, you could like phone some sort of like sex hotline yeah. Yeah. if you wanted to in an old school phone box, okay, or you could I, get the cribs no, to play at your house. I much prefer that style, so we'll go with that one. But it was actually um, when we we tarred the first album, and which time we're like, okay. We're, you know, we're not. We don't want you going out on the road anymore. You need to start working on your new record. But we'd already written a few songs for it, and because I mean, there was only a year between the first album and the second album coming out. But we found it difficult to get inspired if we weren't on the road or living experiences. Because when we weren't on the road, we all went back to Wakefield and lived together. So there wasn't. No, it wasn't particularly influence. inspiring to us at that point. Ross doesn't do the washing. Yeah, up. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty yeah. Much. So, um, yeah, we fault. just like we posted our phone number and just saying that we would just play as long as people covered our travel and gave us some beers on a message board, and all of a sudden we were just out on the road again all the time. It's, it's like how we dipped our toe into really. the internet. Really, it's like the, I think that was like two thousand and four, or maybe early two thousand five. And it's like when just around the times when forums were getting big and the cribs had a forum, and like obviously people who'd seen us on support tours or on our headline shows would come along to the, uh, like you know go on the forum and like so it was our first way of like getting involved in that sort of uh, social side of things. We were just like yeah, we just put our personal contact details. We're like look, we've been taken off the road to write. Is it still the same number you have it. now? No, <laughs> no, we did have the same number. It was weird. You'd get like you know you'd be like like trying to sleep in a hotel and you get a phone call and you're like what the fuck is this and like answering it'd be like someone it's Jeff from po- Belfast yeah, yeah <laughs> or someone reciting poetry to you or whatever and you yeah. go oh yeah. my god mm. <laughs> Ding. Um, what, what sort of shows like if you're going to go and play for that what sort of shows are you going and turning up to, we played to all play? sorts yeah. we once played on campus in York University as well but we'd just sleep in the van then we had an old Black Mariah ex-police van that we used to own and, and tore out of but yeah there was just we, we played a squat in Leeds 
They were just, but weird. Like even even though they were so random, all the gigs were well attended. Anyway, I think yeah. people. It wasn't like we we didn't do any shows that were just like a total bummer. Like it was just like yeah, every know, time you'd you'd go out and you could play somewhere really random, that it'd be like a full there was like, house. You know, club in Driffield as well. That was just yeah so packed that like Driffield. people were just falling on this. You know, like the, the gig. It was kind of like <laughs> a gig, but almost not a gig because there were so many people on the stage because it was so packed that it was like. You just couldn't really, you couldn't really play properly. You know, it was about eighteen months before all that, um, before the Arctic Monkeys started to like really happen. And I think that we could sort of see once once the Arctic Monkeys phenomenon started, we could see how that had happened because um, that had come up through the message boards and stuff. And like, no matter who booked us or where we went to play. It was always really packed and really exciting. It's a real hunger for that style yeah. of music. Well, it's like, I think that kids were realizing that you know kids were connecting with other kids in different cities, probably for the first time that it ever happened because of the internet. Yeah, they were and traveling. It was and like, um, yeah, it was it, it, like it was like gelling in a way that I guess people maybe didn't. You know, it was gelling in the physical world in a way that maybe you wouldn't expect. Like, yeah, it was freeing up all these small town. All these small town kids were realizing. Oh, I have friends in London now, or I have friends in Scotland, and because I've met them through these message boards, so I'll travel to see them. And here's a good excuse because the cribs are playing. I can get the mega bus for like three quid or whatever it is. <laughs> and so, yeah. and and so we were the benefit. Like we really benefited from that because I think that you know that that culture of like message boards and meetups and stuff meant that all the gigs were really well attended and crazy and very um, very passionate people and then and the same thing like so a little later with the Arctic Monkeys like all those people like who would come to those shows would always bring that band up to us like oh have you heard this band and then you know this is before they broke and that's be- and, yeah. And, yeah and because nobody had heard of them in the industry or no one had heard of them outside of the message board culture they were really important to those people yeah yeah well, I was I was one of those message board kids like, uh, like those CDs were going about in my A level centre yeah. and being listened to by people who had literally up until that point not shown any interest in music yeah. Over the four or five years that I'd known them, mm-hmm. which I thought was crazy, but like, you, surely you should have saw that yourself with with your music because people were sharing it and they were getting it for free and they were like yeah. downloading. Now, this is like the days of like LimeWire and like, yeah. like Napster. I think had probably died by that stage, but like, what, what, did you get your like music sort of streamed illegally? How did you feel about um, that back then? Well, I mean, we would like I, I don't think we were really taking that much notice of it at, at the yeah, time. We, we were more into like you know, like you know, we were always into like physical records and stuff like that. So as long as you know, we were making those and people were buying them, we were like people were still know. buying them then though. Yeah, but um, the streaming thing, I I did notice that. Like people would start like posting like um, zip files of like you know like uh, B sides or unreleased stuff, yeah. and having literally no idea where they'd got them from. You know what I mean? So I was like, I remember at the time thinking that's crazy that um, you well, know, like I got found to access to these songs somehow, and like you know, we're kind of making their own playlists and their own albums. So. Um, I you know th- I think re- as far as our own music went, that was the kind of thing that surprised me most was just that like people were so aware of these songs that you know we kind of weren't we weren't playing live and even we weren't really thinking about. It, it's know? hard to contextualize now with how like global the internet has made society, but like at the time in two thousand five, 
like so, so I gotta go to LA and like a lot of the other demo tracks ended up online being shared by uh, all these people that we'd never that we never met and never knew and we went to Los Angeles for the first time to play a show which felt like the other end of the earth for us we'd never yeah, been yeah. anywhere that far and we're playing at Spaceland and these kids are like shouting for I gotta go to LA and like to me I had no idea how they'd heard a song that we'd recorded in Wakefield. That must I was just, blow your mind. It did, mm. but but now yeah. you would tell tell people that, and it wouldn't seem bizarre. But no, like, you'd, you'd see, it'd be like, yeah, obviously, yeah, well, whatever. Like, <laughs> but that's what's interesting about that whole period. It's a very short period where people were first, where the technology was advanced enough that people could connect in real time, and and it was that very pure first bit before it before people took it for granted. It was like there was like a a year or two years maybe where people just were really excited about the ability to connect with other people and that's what made that the the scene culturally so explosive at the time because um people were just really excited about having their own subculture that like that they could connect with other people on and and do it without having to like be like pen pals or fanzines or whatever. And then obviously after a couple of years, people start to take it for granted because that just becomes the new normal. But in that in that short period of time, that was like, yeah, it, it, was, it was really very explosive and very impactful. And that's probably like the the last like time that guitar music was as like widely and vastly important as it as it was like even up until now like you know the, it was a cultural thing yeah, yeah. it's it, it's one of those it, like i i uh, personally i hate and you get this like once or twice a year the return of guitar music the death of guitar music yeah. you know yeah. and it's like well it's never really died and it's never really like it, it's one of those things that's always there and it's always popular like if you look at bands like yourselves <laughs> or like bands up north, there's such a massive, massive appetite for yeah it's guitar just, music, and there always has been. Hmm. It's just like you know, like the you know the mainstream media is just not saying that that's what's in vogue really, and that's yeah. just kind of like the way that it is. I mean, I, I think that when but you look back s- at the main uh, to the 2000s, it did take one really big new band to kind of like kickstart everything, and then obviously it gets diluted it by so loads of bands. Mm. Uh, I understand why people like there was like, a lot of it. shitty indie bands, yeah. Yeah. but it happens Terrible. with every single good scene. Is you get a handful of good bands, and then people identify that that's what's going on, and it becomes change a commodity. style or like you know start a band for that reason. Show up Jump in big the... buses on Tars apart. Yeah, yeah. it became yeah. a commodity, and then obviously I I can see why people would like completely bored and like and not excited by it and that i think that's why we were quite embittered for like some most of the mid 2000s because the early 2000s was so exciting like like we were saying before like going back to like the strokes and and the white stripes where there was lo-fi music on the radio and like bands like us were getting attention because like even though we were we weren't really a commercial band and we, we just thought like it was a that was the most exciting thing that could could be going on uh, as far as a, a counterculture, and then there was the, that internet period, that those early days that I was talking about. But then by 2007, it was just like here's like a, another major label indie band who's just like commodifying that sound, and that's why we were always so annoyed. We were just like, you know, people are going to get really tired of this, and it's a shame because it's going to debase all the things that went before it that were actually really fun, you know. And I think for a band like us, we always felt a bit tarred by that because when our third record came out which was our most successful record, it was right at the height of, like, you know, that that feeding frenzy. And I I always felt like that, you know, 
it was something we didn't want to be associated with. We we, we earned ter- our stripes term, in two thousand two. You know, it was the term indie landfill, wasn't it? That oh, yeah. every, everybody was talking around around about that mm-hmm. time. And like, I could probably name you off about twenty bands that I would probably. Yeah. We've been, about, I've been call, saying that. Yeah. I called that at Glastonbury in two thousand seven, which people never give me the credit for. But <laughs> I, I like. I mean, I didn't use that. I didn't exactly. Did use, you coin it? I didn't coin that actual phrase. Yeah. But um, I definitely like. Um, you know, pointed out what was going on and mm. what was going to happen, and you know, it was a big controversy. I mean, it as, was far as, as far as far as it goes, like in indie world, but it was like it was all the music magazines were pretty up in arms about Rise comments yeah. at Glass. Yeah. What were they, what were they saying? I, 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 well, I mean, it was something about like I think I said something like that. Like, you oh, know, I know what you said. I remember now. Well, you said all these like these major ma- labels. Mainstream yeah. attitude of indie bands is a bigger problem than global warming. That's what he said. Yeah, he <laughs> said it on stage. Yeah, because like we 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 had like the, uh, we, you were supposed to talk about global warming on stage at Glassmeet. They, yeah. they had this like uh, awareness thing, which was really noble. But yeah, Ryder like spun it into this like uh, screed against major label indie yeah. because uh, there was a lot of it on the on the bill. Like, yeah, yeah, they were all showing up like major label versions of bands who would come up from this really organic nice thing and then you would get in yeah these like you had your major label false bands, bands and you had your major what, label but what was it that like particularly annoyed you about about those bands was it the sonics of it or was it the it, morality all of, it, of it? Yeah. it it was mainly it was mainly the fact I'll tell you what it was it was mainly the fact that um that, that, you know we didn't want to be associated with you know we, like you know it was all of a sudden like it, you know it made you part of a scene that we weren't comfortable in but also like because they come later, you know, and the more malleable by the label, the more palatable, and um, you know, a lot yeah, of the more mainstream more channels like, oh yeah, this is this is totally inoffensive. We'll you know we'll go with this. We'll make so it's kind of it's kind of pushing your raw edges out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they had way more advantages than the bands who were around before that. So like the bands who were around before that who had to struggle and like and and uh, and sort of pull themselves up, like they. They were then like uh, superseded by the the sort of major label versions that like had a lot of money and a lot of sway and influence. And I, I felt like it just and like you know we were really purist about things, but we felt like it sullied the the sort of uh, the the reputation of the bands from like two thousand two. Sort of like like we're trying to cr- like yeah. create that was, sort of thing in the first place. Was there one actor one one particular sort of yeah, was, was there one band that sort of like embodied that? No, I think it was mainly the scene as a whole. Yeah. yeah, the fact there was such a glut of it was mm. what was the problem. I mean, you know? It goes back to what we were saying, where we we'd done that thing like where <coughs> we'd like gone in his own van, done it for beer money, slept on people's floors, slept in the studio. van, and then there was another uh, bunch of bands who were coming around with like major I labels versions who were, like hadn't had that, like, and they were just producing crap music, but then also they were like showing up on buses or and had it really easy and had a lot of marketing spend and getting yeah. great radio play and it, it was, was like a lot of the money. mainstream media were like oh yeah you two guys are the same and it's yeah. like, like no, no, no we're, there's actually no, we're, not. Yeah. We're, not, we're nothing like what, each other at what point uh, did you guys decide right okay Wakefield obviously um, not all if you have because you're, you're in Portland New York yeah. and Wakefield what, what, what point did that happen for me it was like fairly recent it was just in the last five years and it was because um you know, I was actually living back in Wakefield. Uh, like, I, no, I was living. I lived in London for a long time when my mm. my ex girlfriend lived down here. And then when we split up and everything, like, you know, I, I feel like it was a, a time in my life where I was really like, you know, 
years and years in the industry had really taken its toll on on me anyway. So I moved back home to Wakefield to just kind of try and get my bit of a head together. show, yeah, yeah. And um, but then we went on tour in Japan, and I met my current girlfriend who lived in New York, and it was like, okay. I start my life fresh in New York now, you know, and that was that was amazing. It was like it was like a total, All going good a total in New York. change. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. And you know, I think that if if it wasn't for the fact that Gary already lived in America, it would have been a harder decision to make because you know, like I think that when we were all together. I think it is good for us to all live apart and then come together to be on tour because if you otherwise you live in each other's pockets. Yeah, the yeah, exactly. Time. And we did that for many years, but um, I feel like it, it works really good for us how things are now with us being really spread out. You know, I mean, it, obviously, it makes it more difficult to practice, but you know, we do. You figure actually seem out a bit more productive. Like, yeah, like, I feel like we are yeah. more productive. We've figured out a way of making it that way. Are, like, you, are you a Skype band? Are you no. guys? No, no, you're not like going. Uh, uh, can you hear me can yeah, you hear me yeah. it's hard no, no, to no. know though because like yeah. I moved out to Portland like before we made like 2006 before we made men's needs women's needs whatever did you become king of the hipsters when you got out there no, or did that come no after? man like I was like <laughs> like yeah I, I was kind of uh, I was fully in my anti-hip hipster phase when I got there but so we were writing like if we were writing men's needs women's needs whatever we just signed to Warner's so it's a big it was a really critical year for us and I think had that record not gone well I would have like had to reassess like whether living overseas was going to work for me but it, it went well so like we made it work but having said that like I was saying look, we don't really know like we, we've been productive but had I never moved to America I, we might have just turned into the Beatles and gone off on all kinds of like crazy you know mm-hmm. tangents or something because we were really prolific like before I moved away so yeah. you know it's hard to say like we, it could have it it could have been the death of the band or it could have been like I mean it's worked for us I think so So the the new album 24-7 Rockstar shit Mm -hmm. you give me a real insight and a real piece of um, knowledge on that that I didn't know the first album to have a swear word in the top 10 since Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols yeah which I think is a really really great statistic that should be like, well known, you know. But, everybody um, smiles when that when that one comes yeah. up. Yeah, it it, was, yeah. The whole record was like a bit of an experiment, as you know, because it's like we we released it. Uh, sorry, we announced it two weeks prior to releasing it, which was like it's kind of like a, a crazy move. No like, lead to yeah, it's, it's, like, it's a bit of a Beyonce move there. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that like and and this record was just purely tailored towards like you know the the, the fan base. You know, we we weren't. We were, it was like a record that had been talked about amongst them for a long time. So no singles to yeah, the radio. No to ra- we, we purposely just thought let's let's record it in two weeks and just do it a totally different thing and give it to the fans. Um, so yeah, we did that and then it still went top ten. Yeah, exactly. And th- that was the thing that was felt like a real a real achievement like, to do. I think it mainly proves like you know the the. Would you know how important it is to actually have a hardcore fan base? You know what I mean? It's Mm. like I think that, like, if you, um, you know, obviously there's shortcuts that bands can take in the industry, like you know, signing to big labels with big budgets and stuff. But I think if you foster a a passionate and loyal enough fan base, like it proves when we drop this record that that they're not going anywhere. They're always going to buy our record first week, and that's what gave us the top 10 and stuff and it's like yeah you don't want to just obviously we don't want to just preach to the choir or anything but I think that you know you always want to like you know be like progressing with every record but I think that 
our last one does prove that after doing things the hard way for 15 years, it's kind of like now we are in a position where... You can uh, experiment. Well, yeah, you can do something like that and still have the same amount of success yeah. because the people that are buying it aren't casual fans, you know what I mean? It was like not, low, yeah, not yeah. people that are going to be turned off by... by you know, we could we could, re- fans, we could really so. test this. Like, right, we, next album, we could put out like a, a, a cover of like Scarborough Affair and mm-hmm. just like some like old Edwardian we, yeah, folk no, songs. Yeah. I like some of those songs actually. The old like Victorian uh, musical musical stuff. stuff yeah. But yeah, but it was it was a low budget record, and like, and we 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 basically did everything that you're not really supposed to do, like you know, announcing. It like very short lead time recording it in five days and not not sending anything to the radio so it was like it it should have been the opposite of like what you're supposed to do and i think that that was the thing that was cool because it's like it it's sort of like the payoff for like having done things the way that we did to like you know right if you could go back and give yourself some music industry advice from when you started after what you know now what would what would that advice be don't let labels get away without accounting to you. It, you know, and this sounds harsh and really, really cynical, but like you've got to be so careful of who you trust. trust no even, it, even if people have worked with you for years and years and years and years, don't think you can trust them because it's like you, you know, it's a business at the end of yeah. the day, you know, and you, you tend to forget that you're so idealistic and excited and. And you just sort of forget, but like if you're, you're just, making just, money, you know, it's some like, really basic rules of business, you know, that you don't yeah. even think about. Wicked. All right, guys. Okay, so thank you for spending some time with me, and thanks for shooting it's the really breeze. Really fun, yeah. man. It's really fun. We just talked to you for like an hour. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this week's Slacker podcast. If you made it right to the end. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you very much to the Cribs as well for uh, taking part in it and being the first victim, the first ever record of the Slacker podcast. It took a while to get there, but we have got it out now. Thank you very much to the Slacker team as well. Um, Chris, uh, Jenny, uh, Adam, and all the legends that helped me put this together every single week. It would be absolutely amazing if you could rate and review this podcast on, on the Apple Podcast platform, or if not, there wherever you listen to it. It's a free podcast and I, I run this for no penny and no pee. <laughs> so like whatever way you can help me out, if you enjoy it, just spread it around. Like the more people I get listening to it, the more I want to make. And I'm definitely going to do season two, but it really is dependent. Like if we get loads of people listening to season two, I'll keep going season three, four, five. But yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, I hope you lovely bastards have a great week and Merry Christmas to you all. I'll be back again next week for another one. We've got a lot of catching up to do. Hi there, everybody. It's lovely to be with you again. Over 100 live games in just six weeks on Sky Sports. Everything still to play for. Scores to sell. Relegation to avoid. Europe up for grabs. And the titles to win. Upgrade to Sky Sports today. 64 Premier League and 37 EFL games on Sky Sports, 17th of June till 26th of July. See sky.ie for details. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.